0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here for another Thursday afternoon question and answer tonight. And on this particular Thursday afternoon, I'm going to be taking questions that have come in through social media, maybe over Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is. And I'm going to work through a few questions that have come in some weeks ago. So here we go. I'm going to begin with one from Loretta who asks this. She says, David, I hate to ask you this question. First of all, Loretta, don't hate to ask me a question. It's fine. says, David, I hate to ask you this question, but would you please address the idea that Solomon is in some way the Antichrist? I came across several posts and websites that say that Solomon is very clearly connected with 666 and that he is the only person in the Bible that is connected to 666. Not only in one way, but several ways. It is somehow supposed to be connected with this verse in Revelation, Here is wisdom in Revelation 13, verse 18. I understand if you don't want to get into social media speculation, thanks. Well, Loretta, that's a great question. And I don't mind you asking the question at all. It's a good thing to deal with. What is the idea behind 666 in Revelation 13, 1? Because the verse says something like this. Here is wisdom, the number of the name of the beast described in Revelation chapter 13 who is also understood to be the Antichrist. Uh, That's not a technically great title for him. Uh, The idea of Antichrist is broader than just this one particular individual. But I believe that the Bible does prophetically speak of this one particular individual who will be some kind of world leader in the very last days. So again, Antichrist isn't the best title for him, but it's kind of the title that's accepted and most well-known in the scriptures this man of sin this beast this son of perdition that's described in revelation chapter 13 verse 18 as having some kind of connection with the number 666 it is the number of his name now how this has often been understood in church history is to go and perform the practice where in ancient hebrew and in ancient greek and i believe in latin yes latin as well letters were associated with numbers. And so you could take the name of a person, uh, construct their letters, add them up, multiply them, divide them, get the square root. People do all sorts of fancy mathematical calculations with with the letters that represent the numbers in a person's name. And they come to the idea that simply the number of somebody's name is some kind of numerical value. This has been done throughout history. It's been done with Caesar Nero. It's been done with Napoleon Bonaparte. It's been done with Adolf Hitler. It's been done with the pope or the names of particular popes. It's been done with Henry Kissinger. It's been with all kinds of people throughout church history. People have tried to calculate a number from their name and identify them with 666. Now, what the idea from 1 Kings chapter 10 is, 666 being connected with Solomon comes from this idea. I'm gonna read you from 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, ready? It says this. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income from traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country. Again, that's 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. So that is the only other place in the Bible where the number 666, 666 appears. And it was the amount or the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly for at least some period during his reign. And so people say, ah, 666 was Solomon. 666 associated with the Antichrist. Maybe Solomon's the Antichrist. Brothers and sisters, no. Solomon is not the Antichrist. He's not going to be a revived Solomon. It's not going to be Solomon, come back to the earth. Solomon is not the Antichrist. We can just take rest in that. Now, it is curious that the only other mention is in First Kings chapter 10 connected with Solomon. And if there was to be any connection, and when I mean any connection, I mean the most slender of threads of a connection. It might be this. Maybe the Antichrist will be perceived to be a very successful man like Solomon, who was corrupted like Solomon. Because if you read the story of Solomon, first Kings, you'll find out that he was an incredibly successful man. I mean, he was one of the wealthiest men who's probably ever walked this earth. He was an incredibly successful man with a reign of peace over Israel. Nevertheless, he, at least as far as we know, he, we know he fell away from God, whether or not he turned back to God, we don't know. That's kind of some people regard the uh, book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon's coming back to God. It could be, but we don't know for sure. It may be that like Solomon, the Antichrist would be a good man, a blessed man, or at least a successful man who goes bad. Maybe that is the slenderest of connections, but that's about all we have to go on. If you want to talk about the number of the name, I think that it's like many, many things having to do with biblical prophecy that we won't fully understand them until they are fulfilled. Right now, we look at 666, number of his name, whoever his wisdom, we don't quite understand it. We don't get it. But maybe as it's being fulfilled, it'll be clear. Or maybe after it's fulfilled, it will be clear. But we can know this, that the Antichrist will not be the son of David, Solomon, just won't happen. Uh, If there's any connection, it's that very slender thread of maybe the suggestion that he's a successful man who went bad. All right, next question comes from Brian. And Brian asks this question. He says, Pastor David, I have a biblical question that's kind of confused me. Or should I say the enemy is trying to confuse me? Nevertheless, I'm really stumped this morning studying Acts chapter 13, specifically verse 6, where it speaks about this man, Bar Jesus. So let me read to you Acts chapter 13, beginning here at verse 6, where it says, if I can read this, now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This uh, man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, here's the question here from Brian. He says, Uh, magos, meaning magician, oriental scientist. It's the same word used for, here, this man Simon in uh, Cyprus, Acts chapter 13. This same man described for us in verse 6, this prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. That same word is used for the wise men in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. So he says, I notice that the same word in the Strong's is also used for the wise men in Matthew 2.1. Magos, meaning magician, oriental scientist, a magician, sorcerer, wise man. I believe them to be astrologers. Is that correct? How do we then differentiate the two examples? In one sense, the word appears to point to good regarding the wise men in Matthew. while in Acts chapter 13, the same word is used to describe a false prophet. If I'm correct in believing these men, and he's referring back to the wise men of Matthew chapter two, verse one, if I'm correct in believing these men to be astrologers, how do I explain it's wrong to practice this art of divination in one sense, but another appears to be okay and can even lead one to Jesus? I keep hearing 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil in my mind. Then he wonders if he's making too much about this and he just wants to know if I have any advice or input for this. Well, Brian, let me just explain to you. I think one of the problems here is that you're falling into a trap or a difficulty that's easy to fall into. When we start doing word studies, we see that the same word can be used in different contexts. And what we need to understand is that it can mean different things in different contexts. It may very well be that the use of magos in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, simply refers to these men from the East being wise men, men who sought after spiritual things and the things of God and it may have a different meaning altogether. Now, not I don't mean an opposite meaning, but within this range of meanings, wise men and magician, there's a range of meanings. It can be at this end of the range in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and it can be at this end of the range in Acts chapter 13. It's a word study mistake to think that the word has all all the range of meaning in every context it just doesn't work that way with word studies it doesn't work that way in english It doesn't work that way in german it doesn't work that way in any language that you want to approach it certainly doesn't work that way with biblical greek or koine greek so there's really no problem with saying that the wise men of matthew chapter 2 verse 1 were one thing and the magician of acts chapter 13 verse 6 was something else I do want you to consider this though. There's no doubt that there was more than a touch of paganism in those wise men who came to worship Jesus. And the great thing about that is that God spoke to them, not because of whatever pagan practices they may have been involved with, but despite those pagan practices. So in no way does it give assurance to somebody who is involved in such pagan practices if I could use an extreme example, how about this? How about the idea of somebody who goes into a life of utter sinful depravity, uh, drug addict, sexually immoral, uh, murderer, whatever you want to say. I mean, just run the whole gamut. They're a terrible person. And in the midst of that being a terrible person, God reaches out to them through a messenger of the gospel and through the power of the gospel and begins an amazing, transforming work in their life. Now, that's a testimony that's been written many times over. Has it not been, Brian? Well, there's no way we would ever recommend to somebody go live such a life like that in order that you can find God. Just because God finds people and brings a salvation to people who are in totally messed up situations never recommends those messed up situations. So number one... It may be that it's a, com- well, not a completely, but a different range of meaning. There are different ends of the range of meaning in Matthew chapter two, verse one, and in Acts chapter 13, verse six. That's one idea. But then the other idea is, even if it was a similar range of meaning, it really wouldn't make any difference because God finds people in all kinds of messed up conditions without recommending those messed up conditions. Okay, next question comes from Matthew. Matthew. Matthew asks this. He says, David, unfortunately, I have a lady in our church who is stuck on the idea that the Apostle Paul described there being more than one gospel. She even handed me literature to prove it. The short of it is that she believes that there is the gospel of Christ to the Jews, and there is a gospel of Paul to the Gentiles, and that there is a specific gospel of this and gospel for that and with all their specific way to draw specific people to a specific aspect of God's kingdom. So uh, this is this lady's complaint, Uh, this man in this church as this woman, Pastor Matthew, uh, he describes this and he says, he thinks he's even heard this described to as Pauline dispensationalism, but he can't find the writings to refute it. He, He wants to know if I have any personal insight that might speak to this issue specifically. Well, Mike, excuse me, I said your name was Matthew before. Your name's Mike. Mike, the pastor who's questioning this. I I think that's a great question. And even though I gotta say, I'm unfamiliar with that exact teaching, I can see how that's the kind of thing that would catch some people in its interest. Now, to be honest, I think that for someone to hold this teaching, the teaching that there is actually more than one gospel and that there are different gospels to Jews and Gentiles, I think for somebody to hold on to that preaching or that teaching means that they are missing some huge themes and passages in the New Testament, huge ones. For example, when you turn to the book of Acts chapter 15 and take a look at the Jerusalem council, you see that they were specifically refuting this idea at the Jerusalem council. The whole section goes against this thinking but especially Acts chapter 15, verse 11, that says this, but we believe that they, or excuse me, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, and in the context, it's the Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, meaning the Gentiles. Notice this, the apostles, when they got together to discuss this theological question, they came to the understanding that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jews would be saved in the same manner as Gentiles. Now I especially like it. And by the way, it was Peter speaking those words. I especially like that Peter said there in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, that we, the Jewish believers are saved in the same manner as they, the Gentile believers. He didn't say that Gentiles are saved in the same way that Jews are. He said that Jews are saved in the same way that Gentiles are. Again, the same way, the same gospel. Then you have the whole idea in Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 18, where God speaks about making Jew and Gentile one in his body. He's making one out of the two. And then I think specifically of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through 11, where Paul specifically declares the message of his gospel. Matter of fact, as I think of it, In Acts chapter 18, it describes Paul's preaching in Corinth. And it says this, I believe in verse, let's see, Acts chapter 18. I'm looking here for verse four, where it says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. In other words, Paul preached the same gospel in Corinth to both Jews and Greeks, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-11, through he tells us what that gospel was. You know what the gospel was that Paul preached? Here it is. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, and he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel Paul preached. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is, and what he did for us, especially in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. Now again, I am at a loss to discern what biblical basis someone might have for this strange idea that there are actually two gospels, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles, and maybe even multiple gospels, uh, gospels for each individual sort of strange group that's out there. No, there's one gospel. The ground is level at the cross of Jesus Christ, and we all come to Jesus the same way, Jew or Gentile rich or poor, uh, black or white, uh, European or American, uh, no matter what country we come from, no matter what language we speak, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. All right, let me go on to the next question. This is from Nathaniel who asks, hi, David, just out of curiosity, Matthew 25, 31 to the end, do you believe, and he's talking about that passage in Matthew chapter. 25, verse 31 to the end. Do you believe that the judgment of the nations occurs on earth and that the goats are just non-Christians or just immoral people? I've read your commentary, Chuck Smith's, John Hill's, Calvin's, Matthew Henry. I've read my dad's, who's been in church leadership for 25 years or so. Am I understanding your commentary correctly? Well, Nathaniel, that's a great question. And the quick answer I would just say is Out of respect for your father, just take his opinion. I don't know what it is, but just take his opinion. No, I'm only joking on that. Although I do hope you'll be respectful for your dad, even if you disagree with his opinion. But let me give you my best understanding of this. And look, I'll admit, I don't know if I'm an outlier with my take on Matthew chapter 25 I do know for a fact that there would be many Christians who would disagree with it, and that's okay. We don't have to agree on every aspect of biblical interpretation, but what I'm just trying to say is I'm just representing myself and my own understanding with this passage here. Matthew chapter 25 verse 31 says this, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then following verse 36, which was the last verse I read to you, in Matthew chapter 25, he goes on to discuss the rejection of the goats and on the same basis, except in mere image. In other words, uh, Jesus and his people, they were hungry and they did not give him food. He was thirsty and they did not give him drink. He was a stranger and he did not take him in. So again, the way that they cheated Jesus and his brethren was the basis of the separation between the sheep and the goats. Okay, here's my take on this passage. Number one, I believe that this judgment of the sheep and the goats is not the final judgment. I don't believe that this is what is termed in the book of Revelation, the great white throne judgment. I think we're talking about something completely different. I believe that this is, even as it's called, the judgment of the nations. And what God is doing is judging individuals after the glorious return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns and will establish... Now again, I want to admit these ideas about what God is going to do in the end times and at the end of history, these are ideas that are in disagreement among Christians. You you can be obviously a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian and not have the same viewpoint as I do. I'm not trying to say this is a universal viewpoint among Christians. I was just asked the question, I'm giving my viewpoint. I believe that when Jesus Christ returns in glory to this earth, that he will establish a kingdom that will never end, but will have a specific thousand-year purpose that is fulfilled. Again, his kingdom is everlasting. It never ends, but there is a specific thousand-year purpose before jesus begins that thousand year period of special purpose he will judge the remaining people on earth whether or not they will be allowed to go into that kingdom that will be reigned in perfect judgment perfect justice perfect righteousness perfect administration by a perfect savior now that's a privilege and jesus will judge the earth not according necessarily to whether people were believers or unbelievers, but whether or not people are, if I could use the phrase, just good moral people. That's the basis of judgment that's described in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 36 and following. Were you a good moral person? Did you help the needy? Were you kind to the stranger? Did you give the hungry food? God will not allow morally corrupted people to enter. Now, Just entering into this 1,000-year period, being allowed to survive on the earth and entering, that does not ensure your salvation. A person would still have to put their trust in Jesus Christ in order to make it to heaven, so to speak. But there will be a moral judgment of the nations whether or not people will be allowed to enter into uh, this kingdom that Jesus establishes in a very direct way on the earth that has a unique 1,000-year period in God's plan. So that's my viewpoint on it. I don't believe this is the ultimate great white throne judgment. I don't believe this is anything other than a judgment to determine who's allowed to go into what is sometimes called the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I know again, I'll say it again, there's all different opinions among believers as to what the millennium is and how it is expressed, but I've just given you my viewpoint. Okay. uh, Our next question, I think this might be our last question is from Johanna. And Johanna asks this question. She says, David, this next question I have weighs heavily on my heart. I have a friend who is a pastor and a state representative. He believes that we shouldn't be passing laws like the Georgia heartbeat bill because the Bible tells us that we can't create laws that enforce religious beliefs. Can you speak to that? Well, Johanna, that's a very good question. The law that she's referring to is a law that was passed in the United States, the Pacific state of Georgia a few months ago. And the heartbeat bill, again, I'm not an expert on this, but to the best of my understanding, it made abortion much more difficult for people as a pregnancy progressed. In other words, the earlier that an abortion was sought, the easier it was to find it. And it was clearly a law meant to discourage the practice of abortion. And if abortion was to be practiced, to practice it as early in the pregnancy as possible. And Johanna has this question. She has a friend who's a pastor. He also happens to be a state representative. She doesn't say if he's a state representative in the state of Georgia or not. We don't know where he's a state representative. But his belief is that we shouldn't pass laws like this Georgia heartbeat bill Because, again, his reasoning is, the Bible tells us that we can't create laws to enforce religious beliefs. Now, can I speak to that? Well, Joanna, let me give you my thoughts. First of all, I would agree that we should not make laws that enforce religious beliefs, or, let me qualify that, beliefs that are only religious in their nature, such as, How often a person should pray? How often they should receive the Lord's Supper? How often they should read their Bible? We shouldn't be passing laws to enforce things that are only matters of religious belief. I agree with that wholeheartedly. We don't want the state to pass such laws. We don't want the state to enforce such laws. Those laws should not exist in a free society. Okay, now, whether or not a baby in the womb is a human life, that is not fundamentally a religious question. Now, religion speaks to it, and definitely Christianity and the Bible speaks to it, but this is fundamentally a scientific question, whether or not a baby in the womb is a human life. Now, it's true that Christians need to take into account all kinds of things when they make and promote laws by the way, I think that generally speaking, Christians should be more involved in politics and not less. We should be in this amazing democracy that we have in the United States. We should be more in the participation that we can be, full of love and goodwill and honesty in our politics, but nevertheless, without apology, promoting what God would say, how a society should be ordered, not in specifically religious observations, but in moral obligations. So when we take into account the promotion and the making of laws, we need to think about things like God's word and God's will. We need to think about the good of society as a whole. Because again, if somebody is a Christian and is elected as a representative over a city or a district or region, whatever, they're not just representing the Christians in that district I think they're responsible before God to represent the entire populace and to keep that in mind as they make the laws and promote the laws. But they also need to keep in mind compassion and tolerance for those who disagree. Listen, that is a Christian virtue. That is a Christian ideal to have compassion and tolerance for the people we disagree with. They need to have a lot of wisdom in our pluralistic society. Now look, Johanna, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm no expert on these legal matters, so I don't know that any of the recently passed laws regarding abortion in certain states violate those principles or whether they violate other related principles. I just haven't researched them that much. But I will tell you this, John. this is what I do know. There is an abortion industry in the United States of America that makes huge money off of abortion. I know that I do also know that abortion laws in the United States are extremely liberal, much more so than in Europe. In Europe, generally you may find a few exceptions, but in most European countries, abortion is strictly regulated according to the development of the child and other reasons. I got to say, I find it striking that in the United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, that a person can seek an abortion at any time for any reason, and many people think that the government should pay for it. That if you want to have an abortion just because you'd rather have a boy rather than a girl, absolutely fine. That if you want to have an abortion because in the ninth month of your pregnancy, you just decide that you don't want to have a baby after all, absolutely fine any abortion, for any reason, at any time of the pregnancy, nobody can tell me that that's not radical. That's almost the very definition of radical. So for my own case, I can't speak to the specific law that was passed in Georgia or other similar laws in other states in the United States, because I'm not an expert on them. But as to the principle, Whether or not there cannot be some good and proper restrictions or prohibitions upon abortion, this is God, God's heart to protect the defenseless child in the womb. Most especially, I applaud the Christian people and the Christian institutions that are doing their very best to love and help and support women and couples that find themselves in difficult problem pregnancies. Isn't this really the answer? It's the love and support of Jesus Christ and the Christian community. That's what God wants to bring in the midst of this. And so we as Christians, we can't put ourselves in the place just where we're standing on the sidelines, shaking an angry finger at the sinners who would dare contemplate an abortion. We need to come with all the love of God and with all the support of God's family alongside people who find themselves in situations that they never thought they'd find themselves in, but we can come alongside and help. Now, I have to say, Christians, all around the country, I believe in other parts of the world are doing their very best to do that. We need to encourage and applaud those things. But back to the bigger principle. No, we don't believe that purely religious matters should be enforced by the laws of the state. But there are many matters of morality. There are many matters of just plain uh, honest, good and evil in a society that go beyond mere religious observance and those Christians should be in support of and fighting for. All right, well, that's it. That's all we have for this special sessions of a question and answer. I hope that you can tune in this again sometime when we have one of our live Q&A presentations. And uh, if you do have questions, you can leave them on the YouTube comments. You can get them to us through other social media means. Um, I'm David Guzik. I have an online commentary in the Bible that some people find helpful. It's called Enduring Word, and you can find those materials at EnduringWord.com. A written commentary available on the entire Bible, absolutely free. It's also available in Spanish on the entire Bible, absolutely free, found at EnduringWord.com. We also have a bunch of other Bible resources in other languages Notably, we're developing the New Testament commentary translated into Arabic and Chinese. It's available in audio, in video, not completely on the whole Bible, but whatever I have is up there on the website. Hope that you can use it. Very glad that you could join us and join us again for another time of questions and answers. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.